Well, in case you're new or visiting, my name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors, as, as many have already said this morning. Um, and it's a joy to be able to worship alongside of you guys today. Now, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, go ahead and find your way to the book of Genesis. It's the very first book of the Bible. Or if you're using one of those Genesis scripture journals, find your way there also. That's going to be on page 6 if you're using one of those black ESV Bibles around the room. Uh, and in case you did not uh, receive, or maybe you know, you're new this week or you haven't come in a little while, uh, we do have those scripture journals um, out in the lobby. And basically that's just the book of Genesis. And it has Genesis on one side and kind of note-taking on the other side. And I would encourage uh, you to grab one of those if you like taking notes. You can use that here on Sundays or just personally uh, throughout the week. And we have plenty of those just uh, straight out uh, these first doors on the right. There's a couple of those um, still available. Um, <clears throat> and just to let you guys know, the reason why we do that, right, the reason why we, we do these scripture journals is because we want you to have access to the Word of God. We want everybody to know exactly what we're looking at together. And we use, at this church, we use uh, what is known as the ESV version. And that ESV stands for English Standard Version. Um, and that is a translation from the original writing from uh, Hebrew and Greek. Hebrew is what the Old Testament was written in. Greek is what the New Testament was written in originally. And that ESV is what's known as a word-for-word translation. So it's a direct translation from the original language into English in which we speak today. Because I know it's very popular for some um, you know, cultural apologists to say that the Bible is just this translation of this translation of this translation of a translation. So how can you trust it at all? Well, that's not the case at all. Um, we are, have one translation from Hebrew to English or from Greek into English. Okay, so we have uh, quite a bit of uh, scholastic confidence that we are looking at the exact wording in which the writers of the Bible penned. Also, you know, we want to be a Bible church, not just in name, right, but actual in identity, that we are ones that open up the Bible and want to desire to learn and to grow through his word. Because I've mentioned before, you know, I hope you're not here because this is just a social fun club that you're part of on Sunday mornings. That's not, I mean, obviously, we want to, right, know each other. We're not just here as individuals. But you're not here just to socialize. You know, you're, you're not here for the coffee, as I mentioned before. Even though I think we're getting better at that. <laughs> you're still not here for the coffee, right? But we are here to hear the word of God. And that's important for us. And so we're going to continue in our study in Genesis this morning where we'll be learning about God's power. We'll continue to learn about his faithfulness, his judgments, his grace. And even more today, more about his promises to this broken world. But I'm going to go ahead and stop there before we actually read our text as usual. And I'm just going to just pray for you. Pray for you and your reception of the word of God. And as I'm doing that, I would just ask that you would pray for me. So let's go ahead, just bow our heads together and let's pray. Well, Father, as we about to just begin our time in your word, I pray. I do, Lord, just ask that you would allow your word 
just to be illuminated in the heart and souls of every single person in the room this morning. God, there is no greater place for us to turn to than your word. There's no greater person to turn to than, than whom this Bible highlights and speaks to, and that is you, God. So, Father, I just pray that you just allow us just to have the, the grace to be able to know you and understand who you are through your word. God, I also pray for our kiddos and the teachers next door as they just look at the same passage, the, 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 the same principles, the same promises, and we're, we're going to look at, God, I pray for those, those little hearts and those little souls that you would just, even at this early age, you would just move in and just show them how great and wonderful you are. That they would be able just to join their mom, dad, grandpa, whatever, of beholding the God in whom they worship. And so, Lord, it's in your mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, Genesis chapter 9, we're going to be in verses 1 through 17 this morning. And go ahead and just follow along with me as I read this for us. Starting in verse 1, it says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth, upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground, and all the fish of the sea. Into your hands they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man... From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image, and you be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply it. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. Verse 11, I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. Verse 17, God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all the flesh that is on the earth. Church, that is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Yes, we're thankful for God's word. 
All right, so last week, uh, we had the privilege of walking through a big chunk of Scripture from Genesis 6 all the way through the end of chapter 8, which was the flood narrative. Right, so we walked through all of what happened and why that took place. And if you remember, the reason why this, this giant flood took place is because God was bringing judgment upon the earth because of sin. Remember, because sin is not simply just disobeying rules, right? It's not, it's not messing up. It's not just simply getting something wrong. But really, at the, the core level, what sin is, is it's a rebellion against God. It's telling God, I don't need you. I don't trust you. I don't want you in some respect. And so God dealt rightly with that sin. But yet, even despite the goodness of God's justice on earth, we also saw God's grace upon the earth, where he spared one family. He gave grace to one family, not because they had earned anything from God, but simply because God said, I'm choosing you. I have found favor with you. And so God displayed mercy to Noah and his family. And now here, what we're picking up in our text is the first words basically spoken by God to Noah after the flood. What's known as this post-diluvian world. That's what we're looking at. So to break it up, we're going to look at two different speeches that we have from God here. Verses 1 through 7, we see the first speech from God. And then the second speech of God through 8 through 17. And we're going to look at both of those today. But I'm also going to show you how Genesis 9 actually speaks to things that we'll see all the way at the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation. But let's go ahead and just look at Genesis now. Go ahead and look back at verse 1 of chapter 9. It says, When God blessed Noah and his sons and says to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So Noah had, after getting off the ark, he had built this altar for God, and he basically demonstrated that the reason why this salvation had come to Noah was only because of the work of God. And so he responded in worship, which is the pattern that we see throughout all of the Bible. God does something first, God saves first, and then people respond to that with worship. And here we see then God say something to Noah that should be very familiar to your ears. When he says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, where have we heard that language before? That was the language in which God gave Adam and Eve all the way back in the garden. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. It's the exact same phrase. So what we're learning here is that Noah, like Adam, is given basically this cultural mandate. That God has not decided to abandon his good plan for the earth because of sin, but rather he is recommissioning Noah as the second Adam, but we'll also see that Noah is like the first Adam and that he also sins. He's also sinful. Next week we'll look at how Noah gets drunk off his own vine and all of the consequences of that. But I also want to point out that Remember, Genesis is polemic, meaning that Moses, who's the author of this book, he is writing to an original audience, right? He's writing to these, these former Egyptian slaves, these Israelites, as they're traveling through the wilderness, and he's trying to communicate to them something about God and the one true God. 
And, and here's why I bring that up. Because if you remember, last week I talked about how the flood story, the flood narrative, is not the only flood narrative that we have in ancient Near East history. Right? There's, there's all kinds of, of accounts of a giant flood happening on the earth. Now, we don't have to be afraid of that as Christians. It actually gives some validity to the historicity of the flood. But I pointed out that some of these accounts, like the Epic of Gilgamesh, say that the reason why the flood was is because the deities in the sky, they thought the earth was too populated, and the humans were making too much noise, and so that's why they had to bring the flood. It's because they had sensitive ears. So when the first thing that when God tells Moses is to repopulate the earth, we know it was not because there was too much noise. Right? So standing in very much contrast to those other narratives, the biblical account reminds us that it wasn't because of overpopulation. It wasn't because that there's these deities in the sky that are very sensitive to the works of man and are impacted by them. No, the reason why the flood was because of judgment. It was because of sin. And so even though these first, first words, Moses is somewhat mocking these other accounts that are in ancient Near East history. So Noah is then functioning then like this new Adam, right? Pioneering a new world in some ways. So although the, this post-flood world is new, we will quickly see that it is no garden, though. It is not a return to the Garden of Eve. Sin is still very much present. Even if you look back in chapter 8, you will notice in verse 21 that God even acknowledges that because man still exists, Noah and his family and you know, his sons and their wives, it means that there's still sin in the world. God knew about that. And God, I think, even makes this very plain as we continue in Genesis 9 about what this, some of the factors or some of the, the ideas or understanding that accompanies this new world. So look at verse 2. This is, The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens and upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. So what God is saying is there's still this, there's this tension in this, this new world that is still going to be between man and animals, man and, and all other creatures. That there's going to be this fear, this dread. It's not going to be like the garden was. It's not going to be harmonious like the garden was intended to be. So there's this default position now that animals will have in general, that animals will actually fear humanity, will fear humanity. Now, I don't know about you, but I actually kind of really appreciate this right now in some ways. Because in case, if you're not familiar, in my early 20s, um, I actually worked for the Nevada Department of Wildlife. And I spent much of that time trapping bears, tracking mountain lions, tackling antelope in the desert, and observing and falling around bighorn sheep over all across different um, mountains um, in our great state. And it was a really fun job, no doubt. But I'll be honest, there was times when I was working with bears or when I was working with mountain lions that they could have easily taken me out. Right? They were faster, right? They were stronger. 
right? They could have eaten me up like that first roll of sushi, if you ever do all-you-can-eat sushi. You know what I'm saying? Right? They would have gone after me. There would have been nothing left. And so what we see, though, is that God, in his mercy, not because we deserved it, in his mercy, he actually created this, this fear between animals and humanity. And it doesn't mean that it was good like the garden was good, but it was, a, it was a mercy that he set in place. Now, we also know that doesn't mean that just because in general this is true, it means it happens all the time, right? People get eaten all the time by animals, right? It's very, you know, we love watching zoo shows as a family. They never show the really good stuff, <laughs> right? YouTube does before it gets taken down. But there's this element in which even God acknowledges, though, that there's, this world is still broken because of sin. In fact, if, if we keep reading, God even acknowledges over in verse 5 that there will be times when an animal, a beast, will kill a human. And there will be a reckoning placed upon the animal because of that. So God knows, even though he's putting these things in place in this new world, sin, brokenness, is still very much present. Now, there's also another relationship with animals that God establishes here in verse 3, where he says, Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. Everything. And then verse 4 says, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. So what we have here in verse 3, then, is God basically authorizing the consumption of meat. Now, this doesn't mean that meat was not eaten prior to this. That may be true. We don't really quite know. I think there's actually some textual evidence to say that they probably were eating meat before the flood. But here we're seeing the first time specific authorization from God to eat meat, right? And all God's people said, amen, amen, right? I don't mean to talk about meat so much, <laughs> truly. It just comes up. I don't, I don't know what to do with that. Thank you, God, for meat. Okay, but what about the blood? Because that's, that's an interesting text, right? Where it says, I, but you shall not eat flesh with its, its life, that is, its blood. Now, some people get really twisted up about this, to be quite honest. They, they're really trying to think through this, I think, biblically. And they're saying, hey, does that mean that God is, is you know, designating how I should cook my meat? Does that mean that I can only have steaks if they are well done rather than, you know, medium or on the rare side? What does that mean about not eating blood? Now, some have stated that this is actually God giving wisdom to humanity because God knows that the consumption of undercooked meat can lead to all kinds of different illnesses and bacteria. And that might be true. That may be true. Of, of this is why, why God is permitting this or at least giving thought to this. But I believe, in, and honestly, in the context in which it is written in, I don't think that's exactly the primary point in which God is telling this to Noah. I think why God is telling this to Noah is actually foreshadowing what worship is going to look like and what the role of blood is actually going to have in worship. 
Because if Noah is kind of like this new Adam, Adam was instructed on what proper worship with God looked like. And I think Noah is actually given the same, what proper worship with God will look like. Because God cares about worship, church. He cares about how we do things. And that's something that we need to take notice of. Whenever we see language of worship and proper worship in the Bible, is are we doing things in which God has designed us to do things? That's not bad. And when it comes to false worship, especially in, in much of the false religions and much of the pagan worship that was around in the world in this time, but also in our day today, much of this false worship actually deals with blood. The way that they handle blood is radically different than the way that the Bible handles blood. In, in many cases, in many pagan cultures and, and uh, worship services, they drink blood. And they drink blood as a way of saying we want to somehow absorb the attributes or the power or the likeness of whatever blood they were drinking. Um, you can see this in, in all kinds of different contexts and cultures. So I think what God is doing here is he's giving clarification that the worship of him, the worship of the one true God, is going to look radically different than the rest of the world. That you are not to drink these blood of the animals in trying to get something or to trick God into giving you something. I think actually God gives clarification to this over in the book of Leviticus, where we see some of this language of, of, of sacrifice and what the ceremonial law looks like. So let me go ahead and show you this. This is from uh, Leviticus 17.11, where it says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. That's the language of Genesis. And then he says, And I have given it to you for, for on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. So I believe what God is doing back in Genesis 9 is he's foreshadowing how blood is going to be used in atonement. How God is going to be using blood to basically have a payment in full because of sin. It's why when we get to the New Testament, you will start to see the language of, and, and Christians will even say this today, that you are saved by what? By the blood of Christ, right? By the blood of Jesus Christ. Because what we believe and we see throughout Scripture is when Jesus got up on the cross, church, it was because he was becoming the last and the perfect sacrifice that his blood was going to fulfill that very thing that we saw in Leviticus 17.11. For the last time, there was going to be one more object of sacrifice, that would completely atone forever, and that is through the person and work of Christ. But if we're looking back then at Genesis, we're just seeing that foreshadow of how blood will be used in the coming days, what proper worship will look like. And in case you are wondering, of like, okay, I still don't understand how can I cook my meat or not, um, I would encourage you that because Jesus was the last and perfect sacrifice, he actually has deemed all foods clean. Okay? Because of Jesus, and because of his work, because he was the last and perfect sacrifice, that ceremonial law of trying to get right with God, to present yourself clean to God, has been fulfilled in Christ. So eat away, church. Bring a medium-rare steak to the potluck. <laughs> right? We'll all rejoice. 
even though, like I said, I don't think that's exactly what God was getting at. I think it was more understanding to just the proper means of worship, the proper relevance towards God in worship. Because certainly we don't see we don't see those ceremonial law restrictions on New Testament believers. Because even though that God cares, and he still does, he cared about how you use animal blood. What more importantly in our text, though, is how God cares about human blood. Human blood. Look at verse 6. You say Bible's open to Genesis. Where it says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So even though we have the right to kill animals for food, we do not have that same right to kill humans. We can use animals for our purposes, you know, resourcefully, not, not just winsomely, right? We're still caretakers of this world. But when it comes to humanity, humanity is special. And we've talked about this at length, and, and God even repeats it here in Genesis. The reason why humanity is unlike every other creature is why? Because humanity is made in the image of God. After his likeness. And here's why that's important for us to remember. Even after the fall, right? This post-fall world, after sin has already entered in and cracked everything, we still see God say, you're still made in my image. You are still sacred to me. And you should be sacred to one another. That's why God's people have always been pro-life, right? From womb to the tomb. That we will protect life at all costs. Now, this doesn't mean that human life can't be taken justly, though. If we keep reading, we actually see implications of what I believe is is capital punishment. That there may come a time when you have to take the life of another because they are unjustly taking the life of others. But I will say this, because my sermon is not on capital punishment. I will say, though, capital punishment, and we see this throughout Scripture, is to be done very carefully, very thoughtfully, in making sure that there is no room for error in it. Because if there's error in it, then you are committing the same crime as those who are being punished. So even in this new world, God expects there to be sin. Right? He expects there to be sin. But it does not change that God's promise to this world is still going on. This promise to defeat sin, right? To defeat the consequences of sin, which is death. To, to defeat our great enemy, Satan, as well. And so even though that that promise, that defeating will, is still to come, will still come later through the person and work of Christ, God is still at work. And we see him still letting people know that he's still at work by giving these covenantal promises. Look at verse 8. Here's the second speech. It says, Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. Now that word covenant, in case you're not familiar with that word, the word covenant means an oath-bound commitment and promise to another. Okay, we see uh, the language of covenants throughout Scripture, but it's more than just a promise. Okay, 
a covenant is, it's basically to the highest degree that you can commit yourself to another. That's why you often hear of marriage as a marriage of covenant, the covenant of marriage. Now, this is not the first time that we are hearing about covenants in the Bible. Explicitly, excuse me, we actually see this back in chapter 6, verse 18, when God says, I will, will come to you and remember my covenant with you, even though we're not given much indication on what that covenant is. I think it's the same one we're about to read here. But even before that, all the way back in the garden, I think we actually saw evidence of covenants being made between God and humanity. The first one we saw was this covenant of works between God and Adam. When God said that you are to, to till, you are to protect, you are to flourish in this garden, and if you live under my domain and under my rules, there will be everlasting life and prosperity to you and to all that come after you. This covenant of works. But what do we know about Adam? He failed in that pretty quickly. So that first covenant was broken by Adam, and God responded to that by another covenant I believe that we see is this covenant of grace. This promise in Genesis 3.15 that he is going to send someone to undo the sin and the rebellion that was caused by Adam. And it's called a covenant of grace is because there's nothing in which Adam and Eve were told that if you do this, then God will be faithful. God just tells Adam and Eve, I'm going to do this and I'm going to be faithful to you. There was no conditions put upon this. Now, if we're looking at our text today, what we are seeing is what is known as the Noahic Covenant, right? The covenant with Noah. And it is also, you'll notice, a covenant of grace. It's under that same umbrella because it is not earned or it's not kept by Noah himself, which is something that God tells Noah. And as we will see, it's actually told to all of the earth of what God will do. It's not saying, I will do this if you do that. God is just saying, I'm doing this. I am doing this to you. I am never going to flood the earth again. My judgment upon sin will not come by a flood anymore. And then he gives a sign, which accompanies some covenants, not all, but a sign of this this covenant seal. And what is that sign? It's a rainbow. It's a rainbow. It says, I'll put my bow in the sky for all to see. Now, in Hebrew, there's not a word for rainbow, so it's just bow. Okay, it's just bow. But to to point out, just contextually, is that same word bow is also the same word that they use for, like, a warrior's bow, an archer's bow. And so, in some ways, that God could be communicating to humanity, to Noah, to all the earth, that he is putting up his warrior's bow and saying, I am no longer going to bring judgment upon the earth in the way that I did before. Now, I know that the rainbow is a sign that is used for other purposes today in our, in our culture, in our world. I'm very aware of that. Okay? However, let me encourage us. Just because it may have been hijacked for a different meaning, does that mean that we can have to completely abandon the biblical meaning of a rainbow? Right? We can still look at the rainbow and see what we see God promise in it. Because even though that we'll see, as I mentioned, the rainbow with this covenant, in a moment I'm going to show you in the book of Revelation 
where there's also this rainbow present, and it means something altogether different there as well. But let's talk about this, this covenantal promise with Noah. It's the only covenant in all of the Bible that is for all of the earth and for all of humanity. It's not given to a special group of people. It's for the godly and the ungodly, right? It's for also for all of creation. Look at verse 17. Jump down to the end of our section. When is it God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and who? And all the flesh that is on the earth. So although it's being spoken to Noah, it actually goes far beyond Noah. It goes to every single person and every single creature that follows after him. So it's still in place today for me, for you, for all of the earth. All of the flesh. It's why sometimes this covenant is referred to as a, a covenant of common grace. Of common grace means it's for all people in all time, no matter their relationship with God. Now, when it comes to this, Noah, and I know probably many of you are familiar with this, right? You've heard that the rainbow is a sign for you to see that God's not going to flood the world again. But I want to point out something of the language which God uses that I've honestly, I've never really quite seen before until I actually started studying this text slowly. Look at back at verses 14 and 15. When God is telling and explaining this covenant to Noah, I want to point out some of the language and some of the priorities in which God has. So in verse 14, it says, When I bring clouds over the earth, and the bow is seen in the clouds. Okay? Most of us get that. But look at verse 15. It says, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And then jump down to verse 16. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature. So what God is saying, what he's communicating, is the rainbow is not so we would look and remember God's covenant promise. It's so that we would look at the rainbow and know that God is looking at the same rainbow and remembering his covenant. It's for him. Now, to be sure, that language of I will remember, we talk about this. This is anthropopathic language. Okay, this does not mean that God is forgetful in the way that you and I are forgetful. This is just, just human terms applied to God. God is all-knowing. He doesn't forget anything. But what God is saying is, when you look at the rainbow, I want you to see, I want you to remember that I am a God who always remembers his promises to his people. It's so that we would remember that God is a covenantal God. That God is still working all things according to his purpose and to his will. So although it's absolutely about God, you know, not flooding the earth again, it's even more than that. It's, it's us remembering that God is faithful to all of his promises that he has given his people. It's a reminder that God is a covenantal, promise-keeping God. And not just the flood, but all of his promises. So even though it's a promise covenant of common grace about the flood. I think it also reminds us of the special grace that we have in Genesis 3.15. That for those 
who, who know that they are sinful, who know that in a broken, sinful world, they need someone to come. They need a Savior to behold. They need someone to atone for their sins. They remember in Genesis 3.15 when God promised to send somebody to do that. And who's that somebody? It's Jesus Christ. Right? So the rainbow is not just about the flood. It is absolutely there. But it points to a greater reality. And that's what I want to show you. So if you guys have a full Bible, go ahead and flip all the way to the last book of the Bible. Go to the book of Revelation. It's going to be on page 1030 if you're using one of those black pew Bibles around the room. Because this is where we actually see a rainbow mentioned in Scripture again. Revelation chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. It's on the screen as well. It says, At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. So for context, the author of Revelation is the Apostle John, and he's been given these specific visions about what heaven will look like. And he's describing the throne room of heaven here in Revelation 4. And he's describing the one who sits upon the throne in heaven. And church, who is the one who sits upon the throne in heaven? Jesus Christ is that man. But notice the rainbow that's around the throne room. So the rainbow will one day not just be seen in relationship to to God not judging the world through a flood, but one day you will behold the rainbow that's above Jesus Christ, reminding us that he has fulfilled the greatest promise that he's ever given humanity, and that is to defeat Satan, sin, and death for all time. So the rainbow is so much more than, I think, just a Noahic covenant. Right? I want you guys to see that, but I also want you guys to have biblical theology. Where does Scripture go with this? It points to that greater reality. So it's not just a common grace rainbow, but also a rainbow about the presence of Jesus Christ to come. In fact, if you were to do like a, a, like a Bible word search of rainbow, there's only a couple of places that you'll actually see rainbow outside of the book of Genesis. Uh, one of them is in Ezekiel, and then there's two in the book of Revelation, one that we looked at, and then also in Revelation 10. Every single time you see the word rainbow, though, it's communicating or it's around the presence of God. That where we see the presence of God with our own eyes, we see a rainbow accompanying it. I think a greater fulfillment of a rainbow. And so I pray that every single one of us in this room would one day behold not just the rainbow of common grace, but the rainbow of special grace. And who's that? It's for those who have put their faith, their life, into the person and work of Christ, that have believed in his life, his death, and his resurrection. Because the Bible says when you believe in that, when you entrust yourself and say, Lord, I can't save myself. I'm just like Noah. I know I'm sinful. I know there's parts of me that will never be able to say, Lord, I am perfect and sinless and be, should be accepted in and of myself in your sight. What the Bible's constantly going at is saying, he knows. 
And he's been providing a way, not so God would look at you and your sinlessness, but that he would look at Christ and his sinlessness, and that Jesus' perfect life would be substituted with your wretched life. Right? The life in which you've tainted, in which you've just fallen, you've rebelled against God. We all have. Right? God's not surprised by this. And so what we see in the book of Revelation is not people beholding a throne who have said, I was perfect, I was good enough. But what we see is people beholding the one who's on the throne and the same one who was on the cross. That's what the Bible is constantly getting at, church. And if you would say that you're not a Christian today, not quite sure if you believe that or not about yourself, is I'm praying that you would. I'm praying that you would behold the Christ, the ultimate Christ that is, has the backdrop of a rainbow behind him. The one who will completely defeat sin and the consequences of it one day. And I'm, I'm looking forward to that, church. I'm looking forward to not having to go to the hospital anymore. Right? I'm looking forward for sin to no longer reign on this earth. Even though it has been defeated by Christ. When, when Jesus went to the cross, he defeated the power of sin in the way that it condemns us to hell for those of us who believe in Christ. One day, when we are behold in the throne of God and beholding the throne of Jesus, we will not ever be in the presence of sin anymore. It's not just the power, but also the presence of sin. And I'm really looking forward to that day. And I know many of you are. But what do we do today? We trust in the one who will complete it. We believe and lean in and go, God, I know that you're not done with this world. You said that in Genesis 9. You've been fulfilling that all the way through. And we have this picture of this ultimate new heavens and new earth to come at the completion of what God will do fully and finally with sin in our salvation. So even in these few verses, church, I believe that not only do we see the covenantal promise of God be established in a certain way, but we see the continuation of the covenant of God with sinful people like you and I. And so let's walk out of here rejoicing in that God. All right, church, let's go ahead and stop there and pray. Well, Father, I'm, I'm, I'm thankful that you are a God who cares about sin. And, and God, I'm, I'm thankful that you're a God who has perfect judgment against sin. And I know when I'm thinking about both of those things, it makes my love for you, Christ, all the more. Knowing what you did on the cross, knowing how much you actually cared about sin. And so, Father, I pray for every single one of us as we just enter into the, the last few elements of our, of our worship service today. That you would just remind us of how good of a God you are. And what a gift and a promise that we have in you. God, I'm thankful that you will not flood the world again. I'm thankful for that promise in the sky. But I'm thankful for the promise keeper. And God, I pray that you would just encourage us. And it's in your mighty name we pray. Amen.